0: fascinating the things which catch our eye. Our brains are always looking for some sort of pattern which can help us better understand the world around us. And as I was preparing for our study here in Mark 8, there was something which really caught my eye. And it wasn't some special verb or strange noun or anything like that. It was simply the number three. And while that number doesn't require a lot of arithmetic, it is really important to scripture. We know that Jesus, he descended into death for three days and there on that third day he rose again. But in Mark 8, we see something which is a little bit different. We see a crowd which has come into the desert that they might endure starvation to be with their Lord. So let's see what is going on here. Mark 8 reads, In those days, when there was again a great crowd without anything to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have great compassion for this crowd, because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from a great distance." His disciples replied, "'How can one feed these people with bread here in the desert?' You know, what's so fascinating about this is while we look at this desert scene with this crowd that has gone with Jesus into the wilderness, this might seem like something which is just limited to that region there around Israel, Judah, and all of those places around Jerusalem, but in truth, this is a microcosm of everything, of our entire world. Since the fall from Eden, Our earth is effectively a desert, a remnant of what God once had planned for it to be. And we're here. We didn't ask to be here. We didn't choose the time in which we were born. But yet, here we are. And there'll be many who kind of stay at home with the certainty of whatever they want to do, with whatever they want to go along with in the world around them. But then there are a few people who will look up to God and say, I'm going to set aside the certainty of the world, which is generally uncertain if we're actually honest, And they look up at God and say, I want the greater certainty, the greater assurance that God has in store. Now, we are going to be talking about certainty quite a bit in this message. And we have to understand that if people stay at home, rather than going out to find Jesus in the wilderness, they're probably going to have something in life which gives them something to eat. The world may not be a utopia, and we know that since the fall from Eden, it never has been. There may not have been a lot of joy or things like that at home, but the ordinary cycles of life would have provided for them as the ordinary cycles of life do. These people set all of that aside and said, let's step into that greater assurance of God and see what can happen. In verse 5, Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to distribute, and they distributed them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after blessing them, he ordered that these two should be distributed. They ate and were filled, and they took up their broken pieces that were left over, seven baskets full. Now there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat and with his disciples went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now here in Mark 8, we're going to see some different scenes. What we saw in the beginning was Jesus come and illustrate what it looks like when you actually come into that presence of God. When you set aside whatever the world wants you to go along with and whatever is kind of comfortable in your own life, when you set all of that aside and you say, I'm going to draw near to God and see what he might have in store for me. We're going to look at this set of events here in Mark 8, because it begins with Jesus showing the kingdom of God, then we're going to see people beg for a sign, then we're going to see people being confused. But in all of this, we find that the world is really hungry for morality. Though in truth, the world prefers to appear to be moral and virtuous than actually go out and do it itself. The Pharisees are much more interested in being someone who displays the signs of holiness than actually living a holy life. And we know in our modern day and age, people really love to look virtuous. There's the language of virtue signaling, which I think would be better known as virtue scamming. Because people really want to look like they're virtuous. You see this with companies, you see it with politicians, people on their their pages and everything that we plaster around. People are really hungry to appear virtuous, to have those signs all around them. But it's very rare that they actually like virtue itself. And Mark 8 demonstrates that for us. And as we examine Mark 8, we're also going to compare it to some other things for them from the Old Testament, such as the sacrifice of Isaac, and learn what it really means to step into that greater truth of living with God. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, asking him for a sign from heaven, and they came to test him. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you. No sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, getting into the boat again, and he went across the sea. Now, it's really important for those of us reading scripture to understand what signs are. Signs are secondary affairs. They're not really the things in themselves. self. Say, if you go somewhere today, if you're going to go get in your car and travel, chances are you're not going to drive across a shiny piece of metal, which denotes whatever road you're on. Instead, we travel on the actual road itself. The sign, which is attached to a post, is not the real road. It's a secondary lesser affair. Whenever you hear your phone ringing, and I can hear mine vibrating a few rooms over on a table, whenever you have that going on, you're not really listening to that vibration or whatever shrill sound a phone may make. You're listening because you know there might be some other creature who wants to have a meaningful conversation with you. The signs themselves are much less important than the real thing that they indicate. But the people around Jesus are not interested in the real kingdom of God. They're interested in the signs, the appearance of it, the things which can make one feel virtuous without actually having to step into that virtue. But Jesus, however, is not interested in the secondary things which often fixate the world. Instead, he is sincere. Rather than showing a sign, he shows the actual kingdom of God itself. The love which his imperfect creatures impress upon him, here in Mark 8, 2, it is returned immediately with the perfect love of God. They are hungry, seeking restoration, and Jesus gives them their daily bread. So let us go back to our scripture. Picking up in verse 22. No, actually, let's pick up in, in verse 14. In verse 14, now the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And they said to one another, It is because we have no bread. And becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you remember and fail? Have your eyes failed to see? The ears failed to hear. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you collect? And they answered, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. And then he said to them, do you not understand? So once again, Jesus is showing us that the real kingdom of heaven came, but people were not so much interested in that as they were the lesser affairs, the signs and indicators which make everything really clear and comfortable for people. Jesus showed them the real kingdom of heaven, and yet there was still a great amount of confusion. Let's continue in verse 22, and we'll go ahead and wrap up Mark 8. They came to Bethsaida, Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Let's take one more pause before wrapping up this chapter. What's fascinating is, throughout the Gospels, Jesus often comes to people and says, Go and tell no one. We find a variation of that here, but it's also a little bit different. Jesus tells this man, who's now received his sight, he says, Do not even go into the village. Don't go. This man, having received his sight, is not compatible with society in the same way as he was before. Now, he's not taken straight up to heaven, as was Enoch there in Genesis, or straight down to Sheol, to Gehenna, to the abode of the dead, as was Korah there in the book of Numbers. But what we have going on right here is a man who has been restored. He's had the call of a virtue come to rest within him. He's changed. He He is better than he was before. The goodness of God now rests with him. He cannot go back to society as he was before, but yet he must remain. He must endure. He must spend more time here on this earth, which is itself a desert cast outside of Eden, the paradise lost. He must stay here, moved that he might somehow reflect Jesus and continue on Jesus' ministry, but not in the same way as he lived before. It's fascinating the language that we find here. Verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And sternly he ordered them not to tell anyone. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo suffering, that he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, again, we find that word again. We'll be looking at that here in a moment. After three days, rise again. He said all of this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who want to, excuse me, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes to the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You know, as Jesus wraps this up, he really is illustrating what Paul later writes in Romans six twenty through 23 where he says people are going to be a slave to something. You're either going to be a slave to your own will, something in the world, or, as hell often approves, you're going to be a slave to nothing. And while everyone always thinks it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven, it's not actually true. Real liberty is found, and better liberty here on this earth, a more perfect liberty is found when people find themselves enslaved to God. Now, that doesn't make you the absolute ruler of all creation, but it does bring you back into that sovereign design which God had designed for you, where you are sovereign with Him as His chief creatures who are the kings and queens of this terrestrial domain. Being a slave to God, that is, surrendering your life to God, And I mean, literally putting your life on the line where you might be killed, you might be beheaded by the beast. Doing that actually brings you more life, more freedom than when you just want to have the certainty of the world, the ordinary circumstances of the world and all of those mundane cycles. So let us pray and then we'll get into our our message portion of this, which shouldn't be too long since we spent so much time in intertwining things with the scripture. But let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to Mark 8. Open up our hearts and minds that we may be impressed with some great nobility from on high. Let us look upon your beauty, and let us be stirred to be compassionate creatures who love our brothers and sisters, that we may draw them towards you and build up all things for your kingdom. We ask all of this in Christ our Lord. Amen. So I want us to look back to Mark 8 two, Whence Jesus chronicles the noble allegiance that stirs his compassion. Jesus notes there in Mark 8, 2, he says, For they have been with me three days and have nothing to eat. The crowds that pursued him were burdened with hunger, having sacrificed the earthly certainty of their next meals to have the greater certainty of time with the master. And we know that John fifteen thirteen says, No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And that's an immovable truth. When we consider the hunger that endured for three days with the crowds who sought Jesus, we do see that microcosm of life, of people who are setting aside the mundane to get closer to God. And Jesus was truly moved by this. And I want us to ponder how much greater the love of God himself is to undertake three days in death. Because God truly was dead. God the Son went onto the cross and he died. And in death, being truly dead, one is in hunger for life itself. In reflection of what he saw his servants do to him, Jesus returned that with great compassion, compassion beyond anything that they could have ever imagined. Jesus undertook a sacrifice to accomplish so perfect a victory that it excelled anything our world has ever seen. And from this, we should understand that God hates death and God hates suffering. But, despite his great hatred for death and suffering, let us not be confused. Let us not think God afraid of them. God is not even deterred by them. Inasmuch as through his word the heavens and the earth wove together, so also through the power of his word was victory found over fallen man's final calamity. The word came to us, made itself flesh in the man of Christ Jesus. God came, he suffered, he died. He was not deterred by these things, slowed down, or even discouraged by them. Yes, there were times in the garden where Jesus, being fully God, fully human, said, it doesn't seem too pleasant. This cup, it seems a little bit ugly. And in fact, it was ugly. But at the same time, it was the most beautiful thing that we could ever imagine. For the love of God came to suffer and die that we might receive eternal life. You know, the modern church spends a great deal of time deconstructing those around Jesus and dismantling their character, which is really sad because... Whenever you are just someone who comes to deconstruct and tear down without doing that with the purpose of building up to something greater, then you're really just doing the work of the devil. You're just sowing downward movement, and therefore you'll reap it. Today, I want us to actually build up and appreciate the character of those around Jesus. Because the crowds actually show us something very inspiring. They had loyal perseverance, which moved our Lord to have compassion. They displayed a sacrifice, and that is something which really deserves attention. There are a lot of questions that we might have about the crowds and their motivations. Were they truly of faith? Were they sanctified that they might not fall back into sin? Or were they just here for a good show? You know, the exact conditions of their heart we cannot obtain, but we do know that they, like all sons of Adam's and daughters of Eve, are indeed fallen creatures prone to sin and therefore will probably lapse back into sin. We know that the day of Pentecost had not yet come, and therefore the Holy Spirit had not come in its fullness. And, aside from these truths, when we actually read Mark 8 for what it says, We know that the Lord, who knows all things, sees every detail of every heart. He saw them in their hungered state and was sincerely moved to stand for them. Jesus was moved by their interaction, and that tells us more than anything we might suspect about the crowd's own behavior. The one who actually knows the contents of their heart saw them and was moved by their hunger. And it wasn't just any hunger either. It was a hunger which came because they decided to spend three days with him in the desert. So not only was he moved to be their advocate against the wiles of death in this moment, but Jesus would stand for them at a much greater time. Moreover, just as Jesus would stand for them in order to prevent their starvation, he would ultimately stand for them in order to prevent their eternal condemnation. But let us not be confused. God never considers condemnation good. He does not want his children to be condemned. He has never desired such an irrevocable terror. But yet our world is plagued by a curse which we have no power to revoke. The great master had compassion on us and desired to relieve us of its burden. And the master laid down his life for the servant. One of the things which fascinates me about our current time is that we live in an era which perhaps has the least amount of people concerned with spiritual warfare preying upon every soul, and yet we are also in an era which has the fruits of spiritual warfare made more obvious than perhaps any time before. We can see it everywhere. One may be distracted on the front end by questioning the exact location of the demons, saying, where is the presence of those fomenting contortionists? But, you know, you can easily get online. You can see videos of people weeping, thrashing over some political movement, even over coronavirus things where people are, are thrashing around, screaming, protesting, and other people can't even subdue them. If you're looking for that foaming at the mouth, gnashing at the teeth, contortionist, well, those images are everywhere. So you can't say that the the demons aren't real because we don't see people doing that anymore. In fact, we see that all the time. But even beyond that, much beyond that, if we actually look at our society through a mirror, we'll see that people haven't the slightest idea who they are, why they are here, even at the most visceral level of being made fully in the image of God as a man or a woman. There's not the slightest idea of how to value other children of God based solely on the irrevocable value of life. And as a result, people try to value one another, say, well, what is represented there? How much are they being paid? What is the minimum wage? And I I want people to ask the question about how much a life is valued. Because you're never going to find a certain amount of money that appreciates that. You're going to be insulting the value of life if you say, well, we need to to pay people more because they're worth more. That you are insulting the value of life anytime you say that it is quantified in monetary worth. Do it. Bring that conversation because let's find out what really makes people valuable. The fiends of hell take joy in having people believe the darkness within them is light. And when we look around our world right now, every major and minor issue discussed on our planet is designed in such a way that truth cannot be ascertained. The only result which can be affected is war between tribes. Political tribes, ethnic tribes, material wealth tribes, it all is designed to bring war between them. Petty and foolish war. But perhaps the most despicable work of evil is how many people sincerely believe the darkness in them is actually light. People who pervert the virtues of God to attain unrighteous gains of their own design. There's great confusion in our world about what is good and true. What is deceptive and evil? And these words are coupled together deliberately. Deception, and this is true whether you look in Genesis or Revelation, deception is always a critical part of evil. Whether in the garden with Eve sincerely believing her conversation with the serpent is of no major consequence, or the beast worshippers in Revelation 13 firmly believing they're on the right side of history. Our modern age has bought this foolish idea that in order to be deceived, then you must feel like you are deceived. But of course, that's how our world thinks about everything. You know, if something is true, then it must feel like it's true. If if somebody has, has made me feel like I've been wronged, well then I must have been wronged by them. There are many topics in our world where only one viewpoint is permitted. Often, people are told they need not speak of something that might offend someone else, that they need to put something on or take something down. And this might be on your actual person, it might be in your home, it might be on your online account, who knows. Put something on or take something off so that you go along with the world around you. Now, these things are often sold to us as being virtuous, that you're you're coming to people with grace and respect, but let this be known and let it be certain. And it's with great love that as a pastor, I speak of this matter. It is not grace if grace is only granted one way. It is not respect if only one viewpoint is permitted, especially when that viewpoint is the dominant one of the fallen world, which is neither sanctified in its worldly offices nor saved by its intentions. Whenever people come to you and say, change how you look, change what your your accounts look like, change how your house is ordered, that you might not offend someone else, what they are asking for is not respect, although many will sincerely believe it is. It is a behest for submission to an idol. It is malice dressed as modesty. It is malice of the most sinister dimension, a darkness which has convincingly masked itself as the light and a task often accomplished by perverting the truth or making the truth so unattainable by the ways of earthly knowledge. Without choice, it is not real virtue. Moreover, goodness is not found through manipulation, uncertainty, and subjugation to a world of tyranny which forbids dissent. Now, I bring all this up not because I think anyone in my congregation or perhaps anyone listening to this is guilty of doing this sort of tyrannical forced idolatry on their neighbors. However, I look at human history and even the 20th century and realize evil is not separated from deception. Very often, idolatrous cultures get to a point, and this is actually the staple of human history, where people put their boot on their neighbor's throat, sincerely believing they are doing something good. There are no magic rules. There is no lukewarm sanctuary where all will be comfortable and at peace. In a fallen world, rest assured that every decision will offend someone. Therefore, when the call beckons, it is best that one be found standing with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We must have grace and mercy and be willing to yield in matters that are not of eternal importance, but we also must be firm and unmoving when it does come to those things which are eternally important. Whenever we're asked to bear false witness, we need to say no. It's moral bankruptcy to deconstruct without a greater motivation to build up, and it's the work of Satan to accuse without warrant. And in our age, we need discernment. We really, really do, and I'm often shocked by how little discernment is found in our age. But much of this I do not consider a sincere lack of discernment, but rather a lack of courage to stand for what is true a willingness to turn a blind eye to things that we prefer not to be true, and a willingness to sit idle to avoid suffering. And this is where everything comes to a point going back to Mark 8. Those crowds were willing to put aside the comforts, the ordinary cycles of life, and possibly experience starvation in the desert in order to come close to God. In our age, noble courage must be lived. Never in our world around us do we see real courage, real nobility, exemplified for its principle. But it's always corrupted by some scheme to taint the great virtues of God with personal interest or political theater or to get people to change their behaviors. Again, this isn't meant to change people's behaviors into some sort of holiness or godliness, but to get you to comply with the world. Jude was right. There are certain intruders who stole into God's set-apart family and have indeed perverted the grace of our God into licentiousness. The Pharisees of Mark 8 demanded a sign. And let us ponder how terrible that is. Because they didn't want the real kingdom, they wanted something much lesser. And when we look around our world right now, there's all sorts of stuff which really just indicates how how corrupt our world is. We, We can see the truth of our world's collapse. You can go to your local store and see the toys and pillows made for children that are made to reflect the little emoji pictures that are used in text messages. And it's quite popular to sell them, which look like the contents of a septic tank. A culture that has parents buying for their children toys and pillows, which look like the contents of a septic tank, is telling you it cannot tell what is good and what is ugly, what is beautiful and admirable, and then what is depressing and desperate. We are at a point where our culture does not have upward aspirations. We must stand firm and live the upward aspirations, not just a sign of it, but live the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be a utopia because we do not do the, the work of telling God when he is going to judge the living and the dead. But we live the kingdom and we have real nobility, real honor in our lives. And as we wrap up our message today, I want us to go to Genesis 22 where we find the sacrifice of Isaac. And in this, Abraham is willing to forfeit the peaceful comfort of life with his son for something greater with God. On the face of it, this story does always seem initially horrifying. However, God never was in the business of loving death, but wanted to teach Abraham that if he really wanted true goodness in life for himself and his children, which includes Isaac, then he is going to have to fully entrust their lives to God. They're going to have to be set aside. They're going to have to put their own will, the certainty in their small things, they're going to have to set that aside and pick up the eternal certainty of God. Genesis 22, 1-19. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and sent out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the word of the burnt offering and said it on the sacrifice. He laid it with his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire on the knife. So the two of them walked together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called on him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. The angel said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. And since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram. Caught in the thicket by its horns, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called to the place, The Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, On the mountain of Of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. All right, so the principle of the sacrifice of Isaac is actually quite simple. Simple, if I can speak clearly. Y'all forgive me. It is a question of courage to step into the broader and truer life with God, even though it's not always obvious on the front end. The courage found in the sacrifice of Isaac was the same faith which was embraced by Jochebed, Moses' mother, when she placed the little baby in a basket and entrusted him to God. It was the same virtue through which Esther stood before the throne of Persia, knowing that, well, she might live, she might die. She could probably lie to herself that it would be comfortable not to confront the king in Haman, but yet Mordecai had called her to that virtue to say, if you sit idle, you know, restoration, salvation, redemption will come from elsewhere. Well, Esther, she goes and steps in before the throne of Persia, saying, If I perish, I perish. Nehemiah left the certainty of his servanthood to dawn the greater certainty of the blood and sweat of Jerusalem. Ultimately, and incomparably, Jesus would show us the real manifestation of this courage when he descended into death, leaving the very certainty of life, that he might come out victorious. The Lord has provided many times, and He expects His creatures to put forth effort and sacrifice the easiness of the world for the great charge of the kingdom. And that's where we're going to end today. So let us close by saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. God love you, and have a blessed day.